0: What's up, everybody? It's Evan Rothstein back with Arlen Porter's TMT time. I'm here again with our copyright, trademark, defamation, First Amendment guru, Dory Hensworth, in our New York office. And for today's episode, we're going to be talking about some recent copyright decisions and specifically the contours of the fair use defense. Dory, how are you doing this afternoon?
1: Yeah, I'm doing really well. It is a beautiful day in New York today. Um, And yeah, we've got a a pair of decisions uh, here, one from the Supreme Court and one from uh, our Federal Court of Appeals in New York, the Second Circuit. Uh, The Second Circuit's talking about a photograph of Prince and then a silk screen of Prince and Andy Warhol. And the Supreme Court's talking about um, how you can build the Android operating system. So Evan, what do you wanna talk about first?
0: Why don't we dive in first to the Warhol decision?
1: All right, so, um, so in the Warhol decision, the second circuit said it was not fair use for Andy Warhol to Well, actually, for the Warhol Foundation to put a uh, photograph or a silk, a photograph of a silk screen that Warhol made of prints on the cover of a magazine. um, Because the silk screen was based on a photograph by someone named Lynn Goldsmith. And uh, so what do you think of all that?
0: This is a long-sorted case, so some background for our listeners may be somewhat useful. I'll try and give the abridged version, Dory, but I I mean, this is an important decision in the Second Circuit because it stands in somewhat of a contrast to a prior decision that I'll get into in a minute, but this case has a history dating back a couple years when the photographer you just mentioned, Lynn Goldsmith, sent a cease and desist letter to the Andy Warhol Foundation many, many years, decades even, after Andy Warhol's famous print series came out and asked him to uh, take it down and remove it for copyright infringement. The Warhol Foundation didn't appreciate that, so brought a declaratory judgment action in federal court uh, to get out of the copyright allegations on the basis of a fair use defense, and the district court agreed with the Warhol Foundation, finding that all four factors of the fair use defense justified Andy Warhol's usage of Lynn Goldsmith's photographs uh, in the print series. Of course, this was appealed to the Second Circuit. And as you just mentioned, the Second Circuit reversed and found in favor of Andy Warhol on, or excuse me, on Lynn Gold Goldsmith, Lynn Goldsmith's behalf on all four factors, a complete 180 from the lower court. Uh, And in an interesting turn of events, I think, probably changed the usage of the fair use defense, no pun intended there, Dory, uh, for future cases, which uh, we will see what happens now, because maybe this will spur uh, photographers bringing cases for what is known in the industry as appropriation art. Yeah. And so go ahead.
1: Can I, yeah, I just want to pick up on that. So in this Prince case, you've got a, a photograph of Prince. I think it was a black and white photo. I'm not sure. And Warhol took the photograph, made it bigger, and he made it purple, you know, and that, that was always Prince's signature color. And he sort of changed this, this simple photograph to a, sort of an icon type of image, you know, like he's done with Marilyn Monroe and Jackie Onassis and others. Uh, and, and there was a similar case back in the same court in the second circuit. Um, also the name, the name Prince is in the case, but it's a different Prince. It's Richard Prince um, who took some photographs uh, in a book about Rastafarians and he, he painted the parts of them blue, like he made their faces blue or he just changed a little bit about their faces. And um, that case is called Cario versus Prince. And in that case, the second circuit said that was fair use. So if you put blue on a photograph, is it fair use? But if you put purple on a photograph, it's not? Or is it a little more complicated than that?
0: I I can't give you a straight answer, Dory, because I honestly don't know. The the new decision, and I'm going to quote here because I found this a a little bit uh, disconcerting. The the Second Circuit in this case said, we remain bound by Carew and have no occasion or desire to question its correctness on its own facts. Uh, I'm not so sure that that's actually what the Second Circuit did. Uh, I think they may have maybe intentionally or purposefully change the contours of the carrie or the second or the first for instance case as you mentioned because in that in that case you did you had pictures of rastafarians with essentially blue blobs on top of the photograph and that court that same second circuit found those to be transformative but in this this instance as i mentioned they changed their mind and the warhol photographs or the silk screen changed changes were not transformative when they reversed the lower court and the thing that that was interesting at least to me uh the difference between the two decisions i think from a factual perspective at the lower court was the testimony elicited in deposition of lynn goldsmith which is that when she took the photographs of of prince in 1984 she said that Prince felt very uncomfortable with his fame at that point in time and was not looking forward to the photo shoot that she was going to do and he felt sheepish and somewhat shy and it was a lot for her to get him to sit for the photographs and that's the way that she was trying to portray it Um, and Warhol argued that well he changed that with the the warhol foundation excuse me changed that with the silk screening and the bright colors and everything else so that's what he would argue was transformative and the lower court found that to be persuasive the appeals court here reversed obviously and said well these these are the same essence of the photographs and so it wasn't changed i'm not sure i agree with that and i don't know how that can be squared with the blue blobs on the caro photographs that were found to be transformative so this is why i said at the beginning i'm not really sure when litigants now come in or photographers in this instance come in and file claims and probably send off letters which i believe will now happen more after this decision where defendants can go in terms of arguing fair use they have to somehow recognize the carrier decision but also recognize this new prince decision and i'm not really certain where it falls in but the statement that i quoted you to me means it's going to be very factual in nature and may frankly depend on what panel you get in the second circuit
1: yeah i think fair use has always had that problem it's one of those you know you know it when you see it and people you know reasonable people disagree on what it is i think it's interesting that you know, there was no benefit. You, you didn't have the benefit of the second artist's um, intent here. There, Andy Warhol's passed away, and there's you couldn't ask him what was he thinking when he did this. Um, one of the things that the decision talks about is whether that artist's intent or how important it is, and they want to sort of make a, an objective uh fair use and not not really go so much into what the author intended and i think you know there's another line of cases involving jeff Koons, where um he's somebody who takes photographs and makes makes big sculptures out of them and so on and he got sued a bunch of times um For copyright infringement and he had to give testimony in numerous cases and he got better and better about it each time in explaining his transformative purpose so um, you couldn't really tell no one, no one knows what uh, Andy Warhol's purpose was there. Um, one thing that, and I completely agree with you, I think it's a very troubling decision. It's very troubling if you're a copyright lawyer and someone's coming to you and asking you, is this fair use or not? Because you don't really know what to say right now. Um, I did notice an amicus brief um, from some law professors, including uh, Rebecca Tushnet, who is, you know, one of my favorite uh, professors in this area. And they said that they thought a better analysis would have been to just look at substantial similarity. Like, are the protectable expressive elements of these two works substantially similar? Um, and, and if you did that, do you think you'd take away like the essence of Prince himself, like, you know, uh, would, you know, does Goldsmith own the way she captured his essence? Is that her protectable expression? Or was really that just something that was essential to him, that neither neither artist could really claim in a copyright sense?
0: Yeah, I, I don't know the answer to that question, but I think Goldsmith would argue that that's what she did own—that she did photograph that—and that's what she got a copyright on. Uh, and in fact, something you just mentioned, which is interesting to me, that you know it when you see it. Goldsmith's lawyer argued that in summary judgment and oral argument, and the court, the lower court, dropped a footnote about it, and the Second Circuit kind of rejected that. So I, I don't know um how to answer the question dory because i do think these are just going to be compare and contrast the two photographs or the art the art on the one hand and the photograph on the other as we go forward and i don't think we have a clear answer in a career direction and i think you're right as a copyright lawyer it is difficult to advise your client if they come to you and say is this fair use you're going to have to say well maybe let's put it on the the paper between the blue blobs and the bright purple and orange uh, highlights in the uh, Warhol case and see where it fits.
1: Yeah. And there's one other one other thing I want to ask you about here. So, you know, there's four factors of fair in fair use. And a lot of courts, including the Supreme Court, says one of them is not more important than the other of them. And you need to balance them out and so on. However, people often talk, well, they talk about transformation, which we've already talked about, and then they talk about the last factor, which is effect on the marketplace for the work. And I'm curious um, on your thoughts about how the Second Circuit handled that fourth factor in its new decision.
0: That's a good question, and I, I, I agree with you most people say that the fair use test collapses on itself and it's really just a transformation test i think the second circuit decision here and this is actually a good segue into the second case we were going to talk about today dory the the second circuit actually did hone in on the the fourth factor you you call it the effect on the market and found here that the markets here were the same um and which was interesting because the lower court disagreed with that uh, and also found that uh, it's an important factor citing to a Supreme Court decision from the 80s. In fact, they found it was the most important factor. Um, and I mean, I, I don't know how how this will play out, but I think that the because the Second Circuit found that the markets would be the same and specifically called them a secondary market. Um, i am I am concerned about what will happen now with this factor going forward.
1: Yeah, well, um I, and also, you've got a couple days later if you're if you want to switch over, to the Supreme Court now, unless there's something else you want to say about the Second Circuit, I'm ready no, to switch.
0: I, yeah, no, that's why I I said it was a good good segue because the Supreme Court actually did hone in on this last factor. So exactly. why don't we go there, Dory?
1: Yeah, so so you've got this long long running case between <laughs> Oracle and Google. Um, Oracle um, had purchased up. Sun Microsystems years ago. Sun Microsystems was the owner of a a coding, you know, software coding platform called Java or language. And um, Google years ago bought, uh, bought up the Android, you know, the smartphone maker, and they used part of the Java system Uh, in making their Android operating system. And the question there was whether it was fair of them to do that. And um, I'd really love to hear your views. Just tell us a little bit about how the case came out and your views on it.
0: Sure. So this case incredibly has lasted or lasted longer than the one we just talked about, if you can believe that. This is a decades-old case that had come, went to jury trial twice, went up to the Federal Circuit, came back down, went back to the Federal Circuit, and then made its way to the Supreme Court. People, as I'm sure you know, Dory, called it the copyright case of the decade. There were dozens and dozens of amicus briefs filed at the Supreme Court. The primary question at issue really was whether Oracle's software code itself, the declaring code itself, was subject to copyright. The secondary question uh, was, regardless of the copyright question, was Google's usage of some small portion of Oracle's JavaScript fair use? Yeah. So the affirmative defense of fair use. So right. can I? Um,
1: can I? I'm sorry, Evan, but. Do you, can you tell us what declaring code is versus other types of code that was in Java?
0: Yeah, sure, Dora. I can try and talk about the code, but I am uh, may butcher it. We'll see what our listeners uh, will tell us. But the, the decision did not reach the question of whether the actual code itself, the declaring code, which in my understanding is the identifiers underneath on top of the source code, which helps the programmers be able to create apps on the Android system, in this instance, through the the programming interfaces, which are the APIs, connect to the declaring code to tell the rest of the code, "Here's here's who we are, slash here's what our program does. And this decision didn't reach the question of whether or not Oracle could claim a copyright in that aspect of the code. And instead, I think the Supreme Court reached a rather narrow decision on the facts of this case finding uh, on just fair use on the defense of fair use in favor of google on all four factors uh so you know whether or not the copyrightable question of software is been, has been answered it wasn't answered directly most of the people that are trying to interpret the decision and read through the lines of what Breyer said on this issue including his Creative analogies to the QWERTY keyboard, et cetera, are that it is an open question, but a suspect one, whether or not software uh, can obtain copyright protection. And at the declaring code level of software, I think it is going to be difficult for programmers to obtain copyright in that level of code. Obviously, the open source. Fanboy group or the EFF people are rejoicing over this decision. Many people are rejoicing over this decision because this decision allows, I think, a more open ability of developers and creative folks in the software space to write apps for the Android store or the App Store on the Apple side uh, to be able to interact with various operating systems such as javascript. So, I think because of the narrowness of the decision ultimately, we didn't get a pronouncement of, you know, copyrightability of software in general. It, it probably didn't meet the hype of the copyright case of the century, which is what folks like Mark Lemley and others called it, uh, but I think we did get a decision that is interesting on the fair use aspect. So, since we just talked about that in the case about the Prince and Prince cases. What do you think about the fair use aspect of this decision, Dory?
1: I think that the court took pains to uh, talk about what a social good this was, that all of these programmers knew this declaring code for Java, knew what it was called, knew how to use it to bring it up and and the court also was i i think trying to say that the declaring code was one of the more basic components of the java system and that the fact that there were so many programmers who used it to make other things and to make in particular the android system um led the court to conclude that it was an advancement um, of science and the arts and so forth um, for people to be allowed to use it to make new things. And yeah, I think that if you were, I mean, I'm not a coder. Um, I did take one class in computer programming. It was fun, um, but not my thing. And uh, if you're a coder, and you use this and you work somewhere else, you, you just go on with your life as usual. This would have been, I think, incredibly disruptive had the case gone the other way. Uh, so I, I kind of think the fact that the case went, went for as long as it did helped the fair use argument. Uh, because it was so entrenched. The use of this declaring code was so entrenched by then and so widespread. It's almost re- really difficult to um, make somebody pay a huge price for it at that point. So uh, that's sort of where I come out on it. I did want to, you know, going back to that final fourth factor and market harm, I was not. Quite clear what the court, um, came, how the court came out on its market harm analysis, and and I was wondering if if Evan, if you had any thoughts on that, you know, to end this discussion.
0: I I do a, a couple thoughts on the fair use factor, and I will say uh, for posterity purposes, I am trying to learn Swift. Uh, I can do a little bit of Python. But my son and I are trying to learn to code on Apple and that requires Swift and I'm slowly making my way through it. So I know a little bit, but probably not a whole lot more than than you do. But on on the market factor, uh, I mean, it was interesting because the Supreme Court weighed in on all four factors and obviously reversed the Federal Circuit on all four factors. Um, I think that the. Uh, what you just said in terms of the public availability and the public's ability to use this, I think affected the market. And I think the court did analyze that under the fourth factor and wanted folks who actually do code all the time to have certainty and the ability. And so uh, I, I think it was interesting that they focused in on that, but I, I, I took away that they focused on the second factor, which is the nature of the use a little bit more than they otherwise would have in a normal fair use defense case. And most people think that that was the result of this being software and software uh, is a different thing than the art that we were talking about. And I'm trying to pull up a quote right now because there is a connection that some people have found between what I just said in Breyer's decision and the Warhol case. It wasn't talked about directly by Justice Breyer, but he did mention something about transformation in the in the context of fair use and said, in the context of fair use, we have considered whether the copiers use adds something new with a purpose or different character altering the copyrighted work with new expression, meaning or message. In answering this question, we have used the word transformative to describe a copying use that adds something new and important. An artistic painting might, for example, fall within the scope of fair use even though it precisely replicates a copyrighted advertising logo to make a comment about consumerism or a parody can be transformative because it comments on the original or criticizes it for a parody needs to mimic an original to make its point so, I think that going back to the Warhol decision, that this quote by Breyer may mean and may give a hook for the Warhol Foundation to file certiorari to the Supreme Court for the Goldsmiths' decision because maybe they'll reverse it and send it back down based on, on what Breyer says here.
1: Yeah, uh, that, but that's super interesting because... He, like Breyer says, if an artist takes a trade, like a trademark, you know, a logo. And so he didn't directly talk about the Goldsmith photo of the musician Prince, but he did. I think he was talking about Andy Warhol. He was talking about Campbell's soup cans and boxes of Brillo. And so I, I think maybe the invitation is there. So I, you could be right.
0: That, that's exactly right. So maybe we'll be doing this next year when they file for CERT, because I, I think Warhol's going up. Whether they take it or not is another question, obviously.
1: All right. Well, it's been really good talking to you about this stuff, Evan.
0: Yep. Good to chat again. And we'll uh, see you next time on another edition of TNT Time.
1: Okay. Thanks, everybody.